I'm going to confess something to you. I have put together the teaching schedule for the rest of 2018, and by 2019, we will no longer be in Luke. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. It says, He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for Jesus was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Maybe you know that the song Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. Yeah, climbed up in the sycamore. I won't finish it for you. Um, but if you grew up going to church, maybe that was one that you learned when you were a wee youngster. Uh, so this is probably a familiar story to a lot of you. Um, I, I want to mention something that, that we, we see here, that uh, Luke 19 is really a transition in the story of Jesus that Luke has been telling thus far. It, it marks a significant transition. At the end of this chapter, Luke is going to give us the story of Jesus entering into Jerusalem, which means that his ministry is rapidly winding down. And actually, the next five chapters of Luke, after chapter 19, uh, four chapters, sorry, are, are going to be uh, four chapters that just encompass a week of the life of Jesus. So this is a significant moment. What's going on is that uh, Luke is, is giving us one final story here with the story of Zacchaeus, one last personal encounter with Jesus and someone that he ministers to before Jesus goes to the cross, before he's crucified. And after this miracle that Jesus works in the life of Zacchaeus to save him out of sin, Jesus has at this point completed all of his works of compassion in the lives of individual people. The only thing left for him to do then is to go to the cross where he will fully and finally complete his ministry. So we've encountered lots of these interactions between Jesus and individual people as we've made our way through Luke over the last couple of years. Here's the last one, the final one, before Jesus ends up in Jerusalem and heads to the cross. And I think that's significant because Luke is going to use this story in particular to summarize quite a bit of the ministry of Jesus as he has proclaimed the gospel and brought salvation to people. What, what Luke is going to do here in the life of Jesus is show sort of a summary of what salvation means as Jesus encounters Zacchaeus. Three truths in particular are what I want to draw out for you this morning. But um, even before I do that, I just want to show you something that I think is kind of, kind of neat as I read this. Uh, do any of you in this room who are grown-ups spend much time climbing trees? Yeah? We got a couple at least. I appreciate your honesty. 
I used to love climbing trees as a kid. I mean, I grew up in the Midwest, and so there were lots of good, big, tall, thick, branched trees for climbing. And one of my favorite things to do was climb up and hang out with the squirrels in the high branches of the tree. Uh, Occasionally, as a 33-year-old man, I will still climb a tree when I'm feeling very childish, but it's been a while. It doesn't happen too frequently. And frankly, let's be honest, the trees in Arizona are... They're not very impressive for climbing. Um, But the point is this. As a a grown-up, I don't do too much tree climbing anymore these days. And I think this is kind of a neat little detail because not too long ago, if we were to go back and just look at uh, Luke chapter 18, Jesus told his followers, unless you become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, I think that he was speaking in figures of speech there, But what we find is Zacchaeus literally embodying that idea as like a little kid, he scurries up this tree to get a glimpse of Jesus. And I think that that's an interesting little detail. I don't think that that's coincidence that it happens here in the story. Uh, So Zacchaeus embodies becoming childish for us in order to see Jesus. And uh, this is made up, but I almost had this image of him as I was reading the story this week of like Zacchaeus up there in the tree with his feet dangling, kind of swinging him back and forth, eating his peanut butter and jelly sandwich as he waits for Jesus to come by, right? That's fictional. I made that up. But I love that just if, if you read Scripture carefully and closely, you see so many of these incredible little details that weave their way through the stories, like I mentioned last week, that remember that picture of the Ark of Scripture and how it's all super interconnected? Um, man, this is just one of those examples. Okay, um, let's uh, get to the real meaning of this thing, okay? I said that I've got three truths that I want to draw out, three truths about salvation that Jesus has been teaching humanity as he has made his way throughout Israel And I want to show you how this story summarizes those, okay? Uh, These are things that Jesus has been telling people about salvation that now I think Luke is drawing all together here before Jesus goes to complete his ministry, okay? The first one is this. The story of Zacchaeus shows us that salvation comes to even the worst of people. Salvation comes to even the worst of people. No one is too bad to be saved. And as a Christian, I I really need to ask you, do you believe that? Because people struggle with that all all throughout Scripture. I don't know if you remember the story of Jonah. He's sent to Nineveh, and he doesn't want to go. The reason is because he hates the Ninevites, and he's afraid that God might be kind to them. And he doesn't want that to happen. Do we believe that God actually might love our enemies, might give grace to our enemies, to people who don't uh, act well or people who we don't think deserve his kindness? Do we believe that God can work to save even the worst of sinners? People who seem like they're far too gone or they've gone too far. The ones that we would be tempted to write off. And, And again, I admit that's a hard truth sometimes. Let me illustrate it. I don't know if you heard this week that uh, the CEO of Planned Parenthood, Cecile Richards, is retiring from her position running that organization, if you want to call it that, 
This is a woman who has made almost a million dollars a year overseeing the slaughter of around 300,000 babies each year. This is a woman who proudly advocates for the murder of innocent children uh, and who sees herself as a, a hero for the work that she does. She, I think you could say in many corners of our culture that Cecile Richards is a hero, and she's a hero for accomplishing essentially the same things that people like Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot accomplished, the systematic extermination of entire people groups. And my stomach churns thinking about it. It's, it's, it's despicable, I think. But you know what else is really disturbing is I was reading some articles about her retirement on different websites. It, and it, you'll find this if you want to, if you were to track down any of these articles. If you scroll down to the comments section, which I don't typically recommend that you do, what you would find is some really amazing statements by people using the Bible to denounce her in some of the most vile and reprehensible terms. Trolls of essentially the worst sort hiding behind biblical morality to justify their hatred of this woman. And truth be told, I think the denouncements themselves are valid. I think they're justified. But what really struck me is none of the people commenting who seem to, to gather their defense from Scripture posted anything about praying for Cecile Richards. They didn't post anything about longing for her salvation, about aching for her to escape the judgment of a holy, righteous God through grace in Christ Jesus. There were no posts about her desperate need for repentance and mercy, only this vitriolic hate for how vile a human being she is, for the evil that she's done. And I do think she's evil, but that means she needs Jesus. And my point is this, there are some people who we think are so far gone that we don't even want to pray for them because we don't think that it's possible for them to find salvation. We're pretty much convinced that they're beyond hope at this point. And what I found to be even more sad is that many of these hate-filled comments spilled over from Cecile Richards to, into hate-filled rants for the women who have received abortions through Planned Parenthood, again, rather than welling up in prayers that these people would come to know the mercy of Jesus, the grace and healing that God offers to those who come to him. And we have this natural tendency to essentially arbitrarily draw these lines about who can and who cannot receive salvation. It sounds a lot like this. People who are like me are deserving of it. And people who are not like me are probably too far beyond the pale. And all through Luke, we find Jesus really challenging this perspective in ways that are tough. He acts in ways that challenge this kind of thinking and, uh, and make us uncomfortable. He reminds us again and again that God needs to be the arbiter at the end of time for what is just. And we here and now in this time need to be ambassadors of the grace of Christ. And so here we have Zacchaeus, sort of the cherry 
on top of the Sunday of these people that we've encountered. This is the last one, and I think we see it so well here, okay? Zacchaeus is the worst of sinners. It's no coincidence that he has to climb a tree in order to get a glimpse of Jesus because there's no way in heck these good people are going to let him get a peek through the crowd to see Jesus. He didn't belong among them. Zacchaeus was a bad, bad dude, and people knew it. Okay? The reason why he's a bad dude is because he's a tax collector. Um, we've already spent time, as we've made our way through Luke, talking about why tax collectors were bad, so I'm going to try to just fly through this and, uh, and not spend too much time um, being redundant in the information that I give you. But I do want to remind you why these guys are bad guys, okay? Tax collectors were considered outside of the Jewish community. Even though Zacchaeus was a Jew, we know that by his name, the reason why tax collectors were shunned is because Jews saw tax collectors as traitors and as sellouts. They worked for the hated enemy of Israel, which was the Roman government. They made their living off of fraudulent tax assessments, and they used the strong arm of the local Roman legion as their thug enforcers to essentially do what they wanted in taking people's money. As far as their fellow Jews were concerned, a tax collector was really scraping the bottom of the barrel when it came to immorality and lack of integrity. You pretty much couldn't find a worse human being as far as the Jews were concerned. Not even the apostate, uh, half-breed Samaritans were as despicable in the eyes of the Jews as the tax collectors were. But Zacchaeus is even worse than that. Do you notice this little detail here in verse 2? Zacchaeus is not just a tax collector, he is a chief tax collector. In Israel, there were three hubs that the Romans had for collection of taxes. One of those hubs was Jericho, which is where this story takes place, which means that Zacchaeus is the head honcho of a dirty syndicate of traitorous tax-collecting thugs. He's the top dog. He's the guy who trains the bad guys and oversees the operations. He's the boss man who enforces accountability. And he has become exceedingly rich by shaving his own profits off the top of his agents who are already shaving off their profits unjustly taxing people. This is a bad dude in every sense of the word. He's a moral sellout to the pagan nation of Rome, a traitor to his people, a godless man, essentially a licensed thief who's become rich off the exploitation of other people, who oversees a cartel of tax frauds. It's no wonder that the people in the crowds didn't want him hanging around. Now, I was having a conversation with my seven-year-old daughter on Friday about Kim Jong-un. An interesting conversation to have with a seven-year-old. He's the dictator of North Korea, in case you don't know his name. And I was talking with her about the ethical, the difficult ethical decision that our country faces. Here's a crazy man developing weapons of mass destruction, and we potentially have the power to do something about it if we were to choose to go to war with him, but the consequences would be astronomical. That is a difficult ethical decision. And I was explaining to her some of the uh, ills, some of the totalitarian evils that this man is guilty of with his labor camps and and other things. And Karis, my daughter, 
Leanne's looking at me like, where was I when this conversation was taking place? Karis, my daughter, she got these really wide eyes as I was explaining this to her. And she said to me, that man is going to hell. <laughs> and, and, and it was both sad and right, at least at this point in time, at the same time. But I wish that I had taught her better. Because I wish that what she had said was, Daddy, that man needs Jesus. Her statement was a little bit like some of the people on the forums talking about Cecile Richards, right? But that's probably how the crowds felt about Zacchaeus as he was trying to peek through the cracks to get a look at Jesus. That dude is going to hell. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. And this is why Zacchaeus had to climb a sycamore tree to see Jesus, okay? I've got a picture of a sycamore tree. Take a look at this because if you live in the desert, you may think that trees look like the mesquite trees around here, it's pretty leafy. It's pretty dense. So Zacchaeus could get a good look at Jesus without the crowd seeing him to throw rocks at him as he was a perfect target, nice and high up. But something wonderful happens, something incredible, something that brings, I think, hope to all of us, something that I had to explain to my daughter after her comment And something I wish that more Christians actually understood when it comes to the gospel. Salvation comes to even the worst of people. Jesus makes it available to anyone. And I admit, I'm not sure that I even really like that concept because I want to believe that I'm better than Cecile Richards. I'm better than Kim Jong-un and I'm better than Zacchaeus. I am more deserving of grace than they are. But the truth is, understand this, if salvation doesn't come to the worst of people, then it doesn't come to me and it doesn't come to you. Because salvation is by grace, it's not by degrees of goodness. And thank God for that. It is a gift that he gives and he gives it without condition to us who are undeserving of it. It's not earned like a paycheck is earned so that you're owed it. It's given by the sheer kindness of God. And see, Zacchaeus' real problem wasn't that he was out of sorts with his community, although he was, right? They wouldn't let him even get in to see Jesus. He wasn't out of, it wasn't, his primary problem wasn't that he was out of sorts with the Jews who hated him. His real problem wasn't that he was a a traitor against his own people. His real problem was that he was a traitor against God. But God loves traitors, believe it or not. God loves sinners. God saves even the worst of people like me and like you through the work of Jesus. This is the summarizing moment of all of the work that Christ has done as he's interacted with broken people right here with Zacchaeus. And this is good news for all of us because it means that God loves us. God has done a great work to save even us. So my, my question for you to ponder on this idea would be only this. Do you actually pray for your enemies? Do you plead for God on their behalf in prayer? Are you humble enough to see that the only difference truly between you and them is the grace that you have in Christ? I mean, the people that you have come to see as too far gone Do you pray for them? Does your desperate need for grace 
And your lowly state before Christ leads you to ask God to save those people who you think are too far gone. Let me, let me list a couple groups that may be categorically a part of that for you. The gays, the abortion doctors, the world dictators, the Muslims, the morally compromised, the pimps and the prostitutes. Moreover, do you pray that God would save even the crowds who despised Zacchaeus because they were better than him and didn't want him hanging around? The self-righteous, legalistic pastors, the rich one-percenters, the moral Mormons, the snowflake millennials, the virtuously deceived, self-righteous Christians. Because, let me assure you, salvation comes to even the worst of people. And if God can save you from sin or save you from self-righteousness, He can actually save Cecile Richards or Kim Jong-un or Zacchaeus without a problem. See? Remember, we, a couple of weeks ago, with man it's impossible, but with God All things are possible. And this is the gospel that Christ came proclaiming all throughout Luke. Salvation comes to even the worst. Second, I want you to see that salvation comes with radical transformation. Salvation comes with radical transformation. The first illustration that popped to mind is the butterfly, but that feels a little bit trite, so I thought about like a tadpole and a frog. It doesn't mean that every Christian has to have a story like the drug dealer who meets Jesus and whose life is radically transformed. He gives up the life of sin. Salvation coming with radical transformation doesn't mean that every Christian has to have a story like Zacchaeus. If that were the case, then I would actually be out because I don't have a story like that. My parents tell me I prayed when I was four years old to invite Jesus into my heart. Okay, So my story is not necessarily radical, but when I say that salvation comes with radical transformation, what I mean is that when you truly meet Jesus and He becomes not only your Savior but your Lord, you're not going to stay the same from that point on as your life unfolds. You can't help but be changed by this one who has been so kind. We don't know how Zacchaeus' life turned out, but Luke shows us that this encounter with Jesus was so absolutely real that this incredible change takes place in the heart of Zacchaeus. Here's how we know this. Let me fly through these, okay? First, Zacchaeus does way more than the bare minimum required of him by Jewish law to make restitution for his sins. He repents of his sin by making right what he had done wrong, but he goes way above and beyond. Leviticus 6 tells us that if you acquire something through theft, you have to return what was taken. And in addition to returning what was taken, you add 20% on top of that to make things right. But what does Zacchaeus do? The second half of verse 8. Fourfold, 400% of what he took unjustly, he gives back to those he took it from, in addition to what he took from them. That is extraordinary. It's hard to doubt that there was a sincere change. I mean, if he just wanted to appease people around him and convince them, he could have just done the 20%. 
but he goes way above and beyond. In the blink of an eye, Zacchaeus goes from being a stingy thief to a generous man, giving half of his possessions to the poor in addition to the restitution that he makes from those he stole. That's radical. That's crazy. Second, Zacchaeus makes this declaration publicly. In a few minutes, he's going to be in in his house with Jesus, and he could have pulled Jesus aside and said, Jesus, I want to tell you something privately just between the two of us. Like, I just want you to know I'm going to make some changes around here. But that's not what he does. He wants all of the haters around him to know that he is serious in this commitment that he's making. Whatever the price may be, he wants people to know that he's willing to pay it to be associated with Jesus. And he doesn't care who knows. He's not afraid to be seen as a follower of Jesus, even if he has to pay a high price for that decision. The majority of his wealth, maybe even the loss of his job, is what he's willing to give up to be known as one who follows Jesus. Third, I want you to see that Zacchaeus finds joy in this. He joyfully descends the tree. And he wouldn't have done that if he wasn't expecting a radical transformation. Look at this. Zacchaeus feels great joy in giving up his wealth, where only recently we encountered the rich ruler who feels despair at the price that he's going to have to pay to follow Jesus. Luke 18, a rich man comes to Jesus and says, what, what, what would it take to get eternal life? And Jesus says, it's simple, just give up everything and follow me. And the guy responds by dropping his head in sadness because he would rather keep his stuff than give it up for Jesus. That man felt despair at the cost of following Christ. But Zacchaeus has been through such a radical transformation that he actually finds joy in the idea of giving up anything that he might need to surrender to call Jesus his Lord. And Jesus declares, salvation has come to Zacchaeus. And I want you to understand, Zacchaeus isn't saved because he has become generous. Zacchaeus is not saved because he has become generous. He becomes generous because God has done a work to transform his heart. And the result of that transformation, the evidence of the transformation, is a changed life where Zacchaeus becomes generous because he now sees how generous God has been towards him in showing him grace and mercy and kindness by welcoming him. The final proof that salvation comes with a radical transformation is that Jesus doesn't just save Zacchaeus, Jesus becomes his Lord. Zacchaeus proves himself already willing to give up anything, to follow any command, to be obedient to Jesus Christ in any way. Before this moment, what we see is that money was his Lord and Zacchaeus would do anything to get it. But after his encounter with Jesus, money gets the boot from the place in his heart as his treasured treasured possession, and Zacchaeus is now willing to do whatever is required of him to follow Christ. Kent Hughes has a book on Luke, and he says this. He says, Jesus turns Zacchaeus' passion to get into a passion to give. So, Again, I just want to pause and ask you a question for self-reflection. Have you encountered Jesus in such a way that he radically transforms you? 
Has that taken place? Has the salvation that you have found in Jesus been accompanied by a change of heart that brings about things like generosity, that brings your life under the lordship of Jesus, that makes you willing to pay any price to be associated with him? It is not, listen closely to this, it is not enough to say that Jesus saves us from sin. He does do that but he also does more. And so we have to say that he utterly transforms us in every way through the Spirit of God now living inside us. He not only saves us, but he becomes Lord and King over us. And we love nothing more than to call him such. The last thing I want you to see about salvation, the final truth here, Luke wants us to see that salvation that Jesus came to give is only for the lost. It's only for the lost. Look at verse 10. It says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Back in Luke 5, towards the beginning of his ministry, if you were to uh, flip there, Jesus sets this up as the work that he is going to do. I love how Luke does this. He, he bookends the personal ministry of Jesus with this concept. In Luke 5, 31 through 32, Jesus says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Jesus says very much the same thing now here at the end of his transformational healing ministry, personally, one-on-one with people. He says that he came to seek and save the lost. He came to heal the sick. He came for the broken, for the sinners. And man, I hope you understand this point that salvation is only for the lost. You need to know that that, that what Jesus is saying here is not that there is a category of people who are not lost or sick or broken or sinners, and, and as such, Jesus has nothing to say to those people. Anyone who thinks that that category exists is self deceived. In fact, some of the worst sinners that Jesus encounters are the religious Pharisees who refuse to acknowledge that they're lost and that they need a savior. Their sin problem is a deep and insidious pride that makes them think that they don't need any help because they're already good enough to earn the approval of God. And see, here's the thing. Everyone is sick. Everyone is lost. Unfortunately, not everyone knows it. Think about it like this. You and I and everyone, we are all infected with the cancer of sin. There's not a person on this planet who right now is not terminally ill, dying of sin. But some people, because they're healthy on the outside, because they look good and they do good things and they live moral lives and they appear good, they've never come to Jesus for the chemotherapy of the cross. They've never sought him for the deep internal healing to the sickness they have that their outside does not necessarily display. And so they go about their lives slowly dying from the inside out, even as their good works and selfish behavior make them blind to the fact that on the inside they are rotting. But if you are honest enough to see your sickness, if you're honest enough to notice 
the symptoms of your selfishness and your brokenness. And you realize how desperately sick your stage four sin cancer has made you. Then in desperation, you go in search of a physician who can heal you. And you find in the chemotherapy of the cross the cure that Jesus offers you. And, and I want you to know, I mean, if you know anybody who's gone through chemotherapy, it just about kills you to save you. And Jesus promises that as well. The chemotherapy of the cross is actually going to kill you as you take up your cross to follow Him. But in the end, by losing your life, you will save it for all eternity. Or rather, Jesus, the great physician, will save you as He crucifies in you the sin cancer of self and He transforms you and makes you new. But understand, Jesus only came to save those who know that they are lost. And that's the beauty of His grace. All you have to do is receive. All you have to do is admit that you need it. When Jesus says these words, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, he's quoting a prophecy from Ezekiel 34. And in that prophecy, here's what God says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. So again, just personal reflection, I plead with you to be honest, to cry out to God and admit that you are lost, to see your brokenness, to see the sickness of your heart, your sin cancer as it festers there, and to turn to Christ and the cross for the spiritual healing that you so desperately need. Salvation only comes to those who are lost, to those who are broken enough to admit that they need to be saved. So let us then with sincere and humble hearts cry out to Christ Jesus for mercy continually. We're going to do communion together now. I'm going to invite our worship team to come on up here. And uh, what we're going to do as we do communion this time is we're going to pass the plates. So uh, as we sing this next song, our ushers are going to come forward and uh, they're going to pass the, the juice and the cracker and I encourage you to take one of each of those and just hold on to it. Just sit there with it. Don't eat it yet. We'll do that together. Um, I'll get back up and lead us through that. And I, I do just want to say that this is uh, a moment for those of us who do call Jesus Savior and Lord. Um, Jesus asked his people, his followers, those who love him, those who have come to him out of desperation, understanding their need for grace to do this as they remember him. And if that's not you, if, if you haven't made that decision yet to surrender your life to him, we're super glad that you're here with us. But I would ask that you just let the, the elements, the, the bread and the juice pass by. And um, again, we're, we're glad you're here, but this is not for you. It's for those of us who call Jesus Lord. Um, let me just pray for us as we do this. God, we thank you for the chemotherapy of the cross. And yes, it is painful as we die to self, but we thank you that in that we find your grace. 
Help us to be honest enough to admit our need for you. And we thank you for your body and your blood. Lord, would you bless this time and lead us into communion with you through your Holy Spirit. Amen.